Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, June 29th, 2012. last second in radio. I don't know why that is. <clears throat> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. The idea is this. Um, you don't want to have competing opinions regarding who God is, what he's done, and what what is sound biblical doctrine, and what isn't, then what is revealed in Scripture. That's kind of the idea. And so so idolatry is a sin. By the way, if you hear the thunder in the background, I'm recording during a a pretty good rip-roaring thunderstorm here in uh, central Indiana, which I'm very thankful for because that's, well, rain. We've needed rain for a while, so um, I don't know how beneficial a good rip-roaring thunderstorm is as far as soaking the ground and really, you know, beneficial water kind of thing. But any rain is better than no rain, and it's been no rain around here anyway. So if you hear that in the background, you know, just I don't have a way of getting rid of it, and I don't have the freedom to record at a different time. So coming back to what I said. So the idea is this, is that Christianity is not a doctrinal democracy. I know that sounds like, oh, how could you say such a thing? We live in a, you know, we we live in a constitutional republic and we get to vote. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, if you're a Christian, uh, you're part of the kingdom of God, which in this life is a kingdom of those who've been brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And it, it within Christianity, it's there is no doctrinal democracy. It's not about, you know, sitting up, you know, going and doing like one of those polls. Okay, we're going to do a poll. Okay? How many people think that the uh, penal substitutionary atonement is still relevant today? Well, 46% said yes, 30% said no, and then we got a whole bunch of group of people who are undecided. So we're going to say that it's only marginally important. <laughs> you know, just it doesn't work that way. You can't, That's not how Christianity is. In fact, I sent out a tweet earlier today that basically said, that the uh, problem with Christianity nowadays is that there are so few who call themselves Christian who actually believe Christianity. 
Um, we really approach, you know, the part, I don't know what if it's the American mindset um, that's that's really uh, not held at bay. Well, it's, it's, well, let me put it this way. Okay, it's our sinful nature first and foremost, because all of us are born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God. And idolatry, yes, you got to look at that first table of the law. So many people just ignore that thing. Uh, but uh, that's the problem is you can't, because the first table of the law has to do with everything pertaining to our direct uh, vertical relationship with God. And uh, and so the idea is this, is that if you look at that first table, the thou shalt have no other gods before me, yeah, um, see, that's the issue, is, is that when you start steering into what you think is rational, what you think is reasonable, what you think ought to be Christian doctrine, and if it isn't, that's a form of idolatry because the details about the God you believe in don't match up with the details about the God who's revealed himself in Scripture, plain and simple. So uh, if you don't like the idea that God's a trinity and you concoct your own God, well, you've concocted your own God. That's an idol. You don't like the idea that Jesus died you know, penal substitutionally on the cross for your sins? Well, you're denying what Scripture reveals regarding what Christ has done on the cross, his vicarious penal substitutionary death. So your understanding of the of what Christ was doing on the cross is radically different than what um, is revealed in Scripture. Now, some people say, no, no, it's not radically different. I just emphasize a different theory of the... Listen, there's no such thing as theories of the atonement. Theories, uh, we're not to believe in theories, we're to believe what God has revealed. I know that sounds simplistic, but that's really what it comes down to. Do you believe Christ died for you or not? Do you believe that he died for your sins or not? Do you believe that he was pierced for your transgressions, that he was bruised for your iniquities, that the punishment that brought you peace with, with God was upon him? Do you believe that or not? Now, funny enough, um, you know, over the years, I've actually done primary uh, research, primary source research regarding the emergent church, and have spent time talking with emergent leaders. I, I know Pete Rollins face-to-face. -face, I know Nadia Bills-Weber, Doug Padgett, Tony Jones, and I've had two conversations face-to-face -face with Brian McLaren. And um, I, I, in one of my conversations with Brian McLaren, I asked him straight up, do you believe, quote, direct quote from Isaiah, that Christ was pierced for your transgressions because I've seen him in his in his books attacking the penal substitutionary atonement. I've seen him doing it, doing it on his blog. I've ha I have audio in the archives here of Fighting for the Faith where he goes after that idea. So I asked him straight up, yes or no, was Christ pierced for our transgressions? His answer, it depends on what you mean by the word for. No kidding. That was exactly what he told me. It depends on what you think you you think by the word for. How do you define the word for? Because <laughs> yeah, he's he's not he he will define the word for in any way possible to deny penal substitution is what it comes down to. By the way, that's a very Clinton-esque uh answer. Remember, um it all depends on what is is. Notice it's that's language deconstruction going on there. And and by the way, uh, <clears throat> Uh, Bill Clinton, he's a postmodern. So just you know, just saying, you know, just bringing all this kind of stuff up. Anyway, so this program is an exercise, a daily dose of biblical discernment. The goal here is you listen, you hear what people are saying, and you go, okay, well, let's open up our Bibles and see if that squares with Scripture. And gotta tell you, you know, more and more these days, I mean. More and more, I open my have to open my Bible less and less because so many of the people running around supposedly teaching Christianity 
Um, they're teaching stuff that just isn't in the Bible. It's like, I don't know where that is. I, you know, what what are you teaching here? This this isn't even a biblical doctrine. Yet they're pat, trying to pass it off as Christian. Can't do that. That's that's it, in, in God's kingdom. That is forbidden. That's the work of the devil. That's not the work of Christ or his teachers or his pastors. No, we're not to teach anything different. We're to be dedicated students of the prophets and the apostles, plain and simple. You know, it, yeah, that's. It, but uh, no, apparently we're not. Now we're 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 disciples of uh, Perry Noble, Rick Warren, uh, Stephen Furtick, Mark Batterson, uh, Brian McLaren, and others. You know, we anybody but Jesus. You know, and the apostles and the prophets. You know, it's just, and they call themselves Christ followers, which is weird to me. I mean, seriously. I mean, if I told you I'm an ardent fan of Lady Gaga, but I don't, I don't know a single one of her albums. I've, I may have heard one or two of her songs. You'd say, "What do you mean by the word fan?" And, oh, I'm yeah, just got ah, oh, love Lady Gaga, but you don't own any of her songs. No, you never listened to much, many of the. I've heard a couple of them. I, I thought they were really good, and so I'm like a super. I'm like her best fan in the whole world. You, you, you go. What are you talking about? And yet we got people running around within the visible Christian church going, you know, you know, you got to be a Christ follower and we're a Christ-centered church. And then you listen to their preaching and Jesus doesn't even get an honorable mention. It's not even mentioned in the footnotes. <clears throat> By the way, line from Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, the Budgie Cuts Part 2. Gratuitous plug there. Anyway... All right, so let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. By the way, I got Lady Gaga on the mind because, well, we're going to be uh, taking a listen to a, a church in Great Britain that apparently decided to, uh, you know, sing some Lady Gaga songs during church, and they got some press in the uh, in the British media. So we're going to take a look at that. I've got a Patricia King gang update. A gal by the name of Rebecca Martin has uh, put together a video called "Talk to Yourself." <laughs> when do you hear this thing? Um, and then let's see here. Okay, I, I've got, okay, after that, after the break, I have got just a quick news story. I want to just kind of read a little bit of it. And here's the question. Okay, the question is this. When was this news story written? That I See, I'm not going to give you the dateline. I'm not going to tell you who wrote it. I'm not even going to give you the source when I read it, Okay. Uh, so the idea is this, is I'm going to read part of it, and you get you have to ask the question, when was it written? Okay, was it written, you know, six years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, a month ago, six months ago? When was it, you know, just, you got to take a guess, okay? Now, if you're familiar with the history of the emergent church, you might think you know the answer to this, but uh, we'll get to that. And then uh, we also got a circle maker we got the Circle Maker review. We're reviewing Chapter 2 of the Circle Maker. I've got Part 2 of my installment on the review of Chapter 2 that we're going to get to today. And then uh, for our sermon review, we're going to be going to Michigan uh, to uh, C3 Exchange. C3 Exchange. Um, Ian Lawton, by the way, who I think uh, would fit rather nicely in the Socinian heresy, uh, who is the head spiritual guru at the Spiritual But Not Religious, formerly a Christian church, they took down their cross. And in fact, I'm looking at the uh, the artwork on the wall as, you know, in the, in the video that he's preaching from. And they got the uh, the yin and yang Tao symbol. I mean, it, it's uh, hmm, interesting stuff. I've never seen the Tao symbol in a so-called <clears throat> church. Anyway, kind of talk about what we're doing today. And by the way, the name of his sermon, I mean, sorry, it's um, his Socinian 
um, life tip, spiritual advice-ish type thing that he's doing is called Live Large, Size Matters. Now, I, I did not pick it because of the name, but I picked it because of the content. So, you know, but that's the name of it. So don't get mad at me. Oh, and we got some email we got to get to today, too. So with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And the best thing I can tell you today is uh, definitely you're, you make yourself comfortable. We've got some ground to cover. Enjoy yourself. Uh, your listener experience does matter to me. So if you want to enhance your listener experience, fuzzy bunny slippers do enhance your listener experience while listening to Fighting for the Faith. And, of course, if you'd like to enjoy an adult beverage, we don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind the biblical prohibition is against drunkenness. You do not want to become enslaved to the good gift that God has given us there. And so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And here's our email music. Okay, I got an email from a gal by the name of Anna. And let me pull up her church's website real quick. I have it in one of my tabs. Okay, Anna writes and she says, Hi, Chris, I I'm hoping that you can help uh, help me clear things up. I just listened to the Mark Driscoll vision casting show. I'm curious at all the visions, uh, are all visions bad? My church recently went through a huge process of developing a vision for our church. I'm not part of the leadership, so I don't know if there was any words from God or any revelations from God regarding this. The leaders went on to retreats. They read books, Sticky Church by Larry Osborne and It by Craig Rochelle, uh-huh, and came up with a vision for which we are now supposed to be acting out of. I'm wondering if this type of vision is wrong or if it is only when they are saying that they have heard from God. And here's a link to my church's website. Um, I, you know, we are really lost here. There are many errors that we are working against, but I'm wondering, is this yet another one? Now, okay, before I uh, read from your church's brand new vision statement, um, I want to make something clear. There are two types of visions, so to speak, when it comes to vision casting in the church. Okay, there is a hard, uh, hard-boiled kind and a soft-boiled kind. I'll kind of put them into those uh, categories. The hard-boiled kind, are that's the bad kind for sure. And uh, the reason why is because it's basically claiming that uh, you've received a vision from God and then to question the vision or the leader who received the vision is to actually question God himself. Um, and what I find is, is that in every single one of those cases, the so-called vision that is given to the so-called leader somehow gives them warrant to exempt themselves from what the Bible has clearly commanded pastors to be doing and be about the business of doing. They somehow receive direct exemptions from God. Okay, all the other churches have got to abide by the uh, the Great Commission and, uh, and uh, Luke 24, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But this church, because this pastor has shown himself worthy to receive a direct vision from me, to do church for the unchurch, that that somehow exempts them from, you know, the biblical office and uh, uh, the biblical pastoral office. So in, in every single one of those cases, that what happens is, is that vision, the vision from God is understood as being prophetic, okay? 
that is dangerous, and I would say 99.9999999% of the time, you just it's not good. In fact, anybody who's claiming to have those kinds of visions, they immediately must be put under huge scrutiny. The Bible demands this, that anybody who claims to be speaking prophetically, they have to be tested against God's word. And so anybody who's claiming direct revelation, they go into a different category in, you know, in the Christian church. That's the way it ought to be. Okay, okay, this person's claiming direct revelation. So now we've got to actually severely scrutinize everything this guy's teaching and, and you know, to validate whether or not the vision is from God or not. Okay? We're to test those things. I mean, think of it this way. I mean... Uh, as as heretical as the Roman Catholic Church is, they do they are very slow to um, to validate so-called Marian apparitions. I mean, there's a whole process that has to be gone through. And by the way, I would say Marian apparitions just prima facie they're all none of them are actually Mary. I mean, just flat out. So. The, you know, their their theology is whack there, and so we you know we we should not be expecting apparitions of the Virgin Mary popping up and giving us communication. So I would basically say biblically we can we can basically say every single one of those, are, none of them are, are are true, okay. But that being the case, the, you know the the Roman Catholic Church is very slow to embrace any so called Marian apparitions, and there's a whole process they supposedly go through, okay. My question is is that in uh, in Protestantism, you know, and you know, kind of using a big term here, um, in those churches that are non-Roman Catholic, that are supposedly heirs of the Reformation, um, why is it that we don't scrutinize and really put the thumbscrews down on anybody who's claiming to receive direct revelation from God? Uh, you know, in fact, anybody who's claiming direct revelation needs to be basically rung through the ringer. Okay, I mean, we're talking they need to be able to navigate the entire theological doctrinal gauntlet. Everything needs to be thrown at them, including the kitchen sink, and their vision needs to be held as false until they've run that gauntlet. You you understand what I'm saying? That's exactly what should be going on. So but so that's the hardcore version of it. And I would say, you know, first of all, there's no biblical warrant. There's no biblical reason for us to believe that an individual pastor is supposed to receive a vision on how to do church in a particular congregation. The church as a whole has a mission, and each individual church is to be baptizing, teaching all that Christ has commanded. By the way, no, the, the, when you look at the Great Commission, okay, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Notice the words, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Okay, in the Great Commission itself is a direct order to teach only God's word, Christ, and what he has taught. Okay, and since Christ is God, that all of God's word then is is to be taught. So the idea here is, is that if Christ hasn't commanded it, hasn't taught it, if it's not found in, you know, the, you know, if we cannot verify that its origin is in the mind of God, it's not to be taught in church. Baptizing, teaching all that I have, right? Okay, so even in the Great Commission itself, the idea of pure doctrine, rightly taught, it's it's included. It's it's not just a, a shady inference. It's a direct 
it's a direct command right there in the Great Commission. Anyway, second kind of uh, vision casting, by the way. It, we'll call it the soft-boiled kind, uh, for lack of a better way of categorizing it. And what I would say is, is that the soft-boiled kind goes like this. We're not claiming to receive a direct vision from God. What we're claiming here is that we're thinking very intentionally and very strategically about how to organize everybody in the church you know, to achieve a particular mission or vision, right? Okay, in the business world, the, ha- the name of that, by the way, is called management by objective. And then the idea is, that, is this. In the business world, that's a perfectly legitimate thing to do, okay? The problem is, is that in the, in the church world, no church has the authority to have its own vision or mission statement. There is no authority given to any congregation to do this. So, Anna, what I did is I took a look at, y- at your church's website, and I want to read this to you, Okay show you where the problem is. What is the vision of our church? I'll leave them anonymous for right now. Our vision is to be, quote, prayerfully building a visible community of Christ's disciples, to which I would say, huh? What does that mean? So here's their core values. Our six core values are obey God's word. What about believe the gospel? How come obey God's word? Notice the emphasis is on the law, not the gospel. Live Live out a global concern. I have no idea what that is, nor do I know where the biblical warrant is for that. Minister through the local church. Isn't that what you guys are? Maintain cultural relevance. Where in the Bible are we told to do that? Maintain cultural relevance? That's ridiculous. Okay? Um, That assumes, you know, some Pelagian assumptions there. Practice our character and calling. You can make a biblical case for that and stand united in in our statement of faith. So here's what I would say, Anna. You got a problem there. Because your brand new mission, vision statements, and core values, um, some of them, first of all, can't be uh, supported from the from the Word of God. This is, you know, live out a global concern. I don't even know what that means. Where is the gospel in this? Okay, when you look at what it is that Christ has commanded the church to do, you would you, first and foremost you look ground zero, Great Commission, and Luke chapter twenty four, where Jesus basically says to the disciples. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. Okay, so we got a message, repentance and the forgiveness of sins. We've got the uh, we've got a commission, disciple the nations, baptizing and teaching all all that Christ has commanded. Right. Um, And I don't see that being fleshed out here in this new vision and mission statement for your church. So we've, we there's a, there's a serious problem here. And this I think goes to the fact that uh, you know they're listening to you know the book Sticky Church and it by Craig Rochelle rather than what Christ has taught and what Christ has commanded. Um this is a formula for doctrinal and theological drift, not only that, it's a formula for creating a so-called church where it becomes a madhouse of works rather than a place where you can sit, rest, and be fed God's word. Yeah, I I would say your church has definitely um, jumped the shark here and gone the wrong direction. And at this point, it doesn't matter if it's the hard-boiled vision or the soft-boiled version kind. Um, these objectives are not part of what, uh, of the biblical mandate for the church as a whole. And no individual congregation is to have 
its own unique separate mission vision statement. That vision is given to the church as a whole. Individual congregations are tasked with the job of discipling and baptizing. You, you, you understand what I'm saying. All right. So, we, yeah, we got a big, big problem there. I'm sorry, Anna, but um, you, you, I don't know. You might want to have a conversation with these folks, but they're so far down the process that uh, I think they would consider you a troublemaker the, the second uh, that you raise a concern. Okay, another <clears throat> email here. Uh, Daryl from Oklahoma City writes, he says, A while back I read a great book entitled Life the Movie, How Entertainment Conquered Reality. This book uh, could be the blueprint for the sermon on Samson that Neil uh, on Samson that we heard yesterday. By the way, that would be uh, T.C. Mooney's sermon. Uh, Neil Gamble, the author of the book, bemoans the fact that our culture trains us to view ourselves as the stars of our own personal movie. Yep, it does. Of co- so, of course, we are the center of everything. We are all Indiana Jones. We are Spider Man. We're all Captain America. T.C. Mooney is co-opting the scriptures to teach this pagan cultural heritage. Samson was the star of his movie, so we are each the stars of our own movies. I don't know anything about his church, but I have an idea that the sermons on our sin and how Christ redeemed us from it and its consequences are probably pretty scarce. Very little of Jesus in this sermon, but it could be worse. I think we've heard some from uh, some from the Gospels that have uh, left Jesus out. At the beginning of the uh, sermon, when he asked how many had read Judges, he was surprised at the response. He was probably uh, <laughs> this was probably because he hadn't read the book himself. <laughs> anyway, after all, his life is the movie, and if he is the star and hasn't read it, probably no one else has either. So, great insight, by the way. So it's called uh, My uh, Life, the movie. Uh, yeah, that's uh, worth checking out. I think I may have heard Horton from the White Horse Inn uh, discussing that. Uh, in, on previous episodes of the White Horse Inn. Okay, we are up. Well, let's take a look here. Um, mm, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off on the break. Yeah, I, I'm looking at what I want to talk about today. I want to make sure that we get to it. Um, so with that, what we're gonna do is we're gonna change gears and uh, do our Patricia King Gang update. Here we go. Do you want to hear the voice of Jesus? Well, have you ever considered talking to yourself? You're going, what are you saying, Chris? Well, here, I'll I'll let Rebecca Martin from the Patricia King Gang explain how you can hear the voice of Jesus by simply talking to yourself. (laughs) I know, I know. It's just you're sitting there going, really? Yes, really. Have you ever been in a place where you really need encouragement? And either you're not getting it from people that are around you or or maybe you need encouragement when you're alone and there's no one there to encourage you. Okay, I'll bite. Sure. Or maybe you need encouragement from the Lord, but you're not really sensing that he's encouraging you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How am I supposed to sense <laughs> that Jesus is encouraging me. Reminds me of that Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. Can, you know, I, I man, I miss Calvin and Hobbes. That was a great cartoon. My kids love those. My my son ended up buying like the entire collection of Calvin and Hobbes. Anyway, I'm digressing. But there was a fun cartoon where Calvin was looking at lightning bugs. Apparently, he grew up in the Midwest somewhere, and uh, and uh, and so he was in his backyard, kind of shaking his behind, trying to get it to light up. And uh, is uh, Tiger Hobbs looks at him and says, "What are you trying to do?" He says, "I'm trying to get my rear end to light up, but I can't figure out which muscle to flex." So I, you know, just there's a point to all of this, and the point is, this is that um, where how am I supposed to 
sense Jesus encouraging me? What muscle do I flex? What what part of my inner being do I take the flashlight and go looking for? What are you talking about? Well, I just want to tell you, talk to yourself. I do. And... <laughs> And therein lies the problem, I think. Now watch this. <laughs> Just listen to this stretch of theological logic. So, you know, do you need encouragement from the Lord, but you're just not sensing it? Well, talk to yourself. She does. Now watch your logic for this. This is this is what I call doctrinal speculation of the worst kind. But here we go. In fact, there's times where I need encouragement, and I just begin to talk to myself, saying, Becca, you can do this. Becca, just don't quit. Keep going. Keep moving forward. Move on. You can do this. You're never alone. And so I, what, what I figured in this was if Christ lives in me, yeah. then as I speak, he's speaking through me. And- <laughs> really? Oh, my. Oh, my. So that little voice inside of your head that you're now giving word to, that's Jesus talking to you. So you want to hear Jesus talk? Just talk to yourself. Now that's a that's just some, wow. And to me. And I'm not talking about the, the talking like, you know, boy, you bit off more than you could chew. Or just quit. You're never going to be able to finish it. Well, how do you know that's not Jesus? But the, the talk that really builds one up, the talk. Oh, so if it's positive and builds you up, then that's Jesus talking. But what if you're doing something wrong and Jesus is telling you to knock it off? That where you rise up and you begin to encourage yourself. And so I just wanted to say that today, if you need encouragement or tomorrow or, or whenever you find that you're in a place of needing encouragement and you don't get it, just talk to yourself. And as you do, Christ will talk to you too. <laughs> oh my. <clears throat> Now, here's the deal, okay? Notice there isn't a single biblical passage that says when you talk to yourself, because Jesus dwells in you, that means that Jesus is talking to you. This was just an extrapolation that she made that she has no biblical warrant. Now, see, here's the deal. If you start talking to yourself and you think that that's Jesus talking, well, then what you're doing is projecting Jesus onto your own ego, and you might actually create the cycle by which you think that you're the Messiah. Just saying. And you, and you would justify it by saying, well, listen, it's the Messiah that lives in me that's, that goes this way. By the way, say, oh, man, what a mess. <clears throat> so there you go. You want to hear the voice of Jesus? All you got to do is talk to yourself, but don't you, you got to filter out any of the negative talk because Jesus would never be negative. No, 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 no. <sighs> Sad. I mean, th- I think this is what Jesus talks about. You know, a blind man digging a pit, and you know, uh, blind, you know, blind leading the blind. Blind, they both end up in a pit. That ain't biblical theology. That ain't biblical doctrine, and it's not even solid biblical thinking or a valid inference of what's taught in Scripture. So. Something to keep in mind. Okay, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful! Your goddess is coming along beautifully! Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven, except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, my good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god! Purchased your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga.
warning, even though the Holy Spirit resides in you, talking to yourself doesn't mean that that's God talking to you. I'm just saying. If you want to hear God's voice, open up the Bible. Read that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there's perks. If you join our crew you know, for the next few weeks, we'll send you a copy to download our uh, latest uh, Mac. Well, actually, it's our first ever comedy album, Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, Theater, The Budgie Cuts Part 2. Just join our crew. We'll send you a link so that you can uh, download uh, a copy of of that uh, fun album for yourself. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Moving along here. Okay, I'm going to mess up this name from the uh, the Norwich Norwich Evening News 24. You know, I, I forget how the Brits pronounce this. Anyway, uh, the headline reads, A Norwich Religious Group Discusses the Impact of Lady Gaga. And I know I'm going to be getting um, emails from you all trying to tell you. Know, I do much better in pronouncing Hebrew than I do <laughs> British English. I I need to take a class in British English is what it comes out. I need to spend some time in Great Britain is probably what I really need to do. Anyway, this was written by uh, David Freezer. Uh, and uh, listen, listen to this and see. Um, uh, while millions of people were watching the controversial pop superstar Lady Gaga perform on The X Factor, a Norwich religious group was discussing the profound impact the American has had on our culture now by the way this is the story isn't brand new this is a this is dated it's a little bit old but it's you know sometimes it takes a while for stories like this to actually uh, swim across the pond to the united states and then make their way inland to uh, the midwest in order for me to notice them i just just want to let you know so this is not exactly a fresh story but anyway but still it's still pertinent so so the uh the norwich church proclaimers based at this at the space on Roundtree Way decided that it was time to have their say, and their lead pastor, John Rawls, held a talk just ahead of the pop star's appearance on ITV's popular talent show. He said, quote, Lady Gaga is an international phenomenon who is having influence on millions of young people across the globe, yet just earlier this year her song Judas caused uproar among some... Uh, some do it due to its reportedly blasphemous lyrics. I wanted to explore what it is that we can learn from this much debated performer. What? So you wanted to explore what we can learn from the much debated performer? So what they ended up as part of their Lady Gaga night, they had <laughs> really bad Lady Gaga church karaoke. Here, here's here's a sample. Um, a warning: you may want to put cotton in your ear. But here's uh, someone from their church performing a Lady Gaga song.
kind of redundant. A little pitchy. Like I should talk, you know. realize that the, is the folks in Indonesia or Singapore, they have more biblical sense <laughs> than some churches. You know, at least they understand that Lady Gaga is a threat, not a, somebody to be embraced. Anyway. Okay, I can't stand it. Done. By the way, if you want to see that, I have that at the Museum of Idolatry. The The exhibit is called Lady Gaga's Telephone and Really Bad Church Karaoke. So, yeah, so what's wrong with all of this? Well, let me read a little bit more and we'll figure out what's going on. So, uh, okay, so where did I leave off? Mr. Rawls, an American born. Okay, yeah, here we go. <sighs> yeah, we got to explore. You know, this, this woman has had a profound, and so we need to explore, you know, her impact and stuff like that. Describing her latest album, Born This Way, Lady Gaga describes it as bad kids going to church, having fun on a high level. Mr. Rawls, an American born Australian who came to England in 2004, well, that's quite a pedigree, decided that uh, that rang true with the values of his church. His church. He rang true with the values of his church, not the church, which aims to provide opportunities for people of all ages, particularly the young adults, to find faith and meaningful involvement in a community. Faith in whom? Faith in what? And what does it mean to have meaningful involvement in a community? Uh, you, you just, you're you're going to help them become a dog catcher? I mean, what are you talking about here? Anyway, the evening also included performances of some of Lady Gaga's songs from members of the church and was intended to explore reactions to the t uh, pop star's famous for once uh, wearing a dress made entirely of meat. He continued, since embarking on her career, she has sold an estimated 25 million albums, 64 million singles, and turn has made her, uh, has in turn made her one of the best-selling music artists of all time. Yeah, so what? In 2010, she appeared on the uh, the Time 100 Most Influential People on the Planet list. Quote, love her or hate her, she is making her mark on pop culture today. Again, I say, so what? For this reason alone, the church needs to stop and take a closer look at this phenomenon known as Lady Gaga. No, we don't. It's, it's we don't. This. No matter how you slice it, I'm, Lady Gaga has nothing to offer us. Like zilch, unless, of course, you're looking for an illustration of a sinner who needs to repent and be brought to faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of her sins, like the rest of us. But, I, I mean, just because she sold 25 million uh, albums. By the way, think about that. Okay, just think about the number for a second. Okay, how many people are there on the planet? They're saying, what, 7 billion, right? Okay, well, apparently we've crossed the 7 billion mark. She's sold 25 million albums? You do the math. I mean, so it doesn't matter that she's like all the rage in American or British pop culture. So what? It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. She's going to be here today and gone tomorrow. She might stick around like Madonna has. But I, you know, I don't like her music any either. But the point is, this is who cares? I mean, just because somebody is a pop culture icon doesn't mean that we need to explore anything about them. Because the church, okay, go back to the Great Commission: all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Right? That's what Jesus says. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? Baptizing, right? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching all that I have commanded you. All that I have. See, the church, well, we've, we've got, we got, we got busier. We got, well, more important things to deal with than Lady Gaga. I mean, yeah, see, we got a crucified and risen Savior, you know, and, you know, the God of the universe and human flesh. We got this good news to proclaim of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, announcing to the world that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, right? So we, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't really like Lady Gaga, but I mean, those of you who like Lady Gaga, I, you know, I understand, you know, she's got some catchy little tunes that she sings and just, and she's kind of a train wreck to watch fashion wise, but yeah, uh, despite all of that, yeah, I, I tell you what, as soon as we're done, okay, as soon as the church is done discipling the nations and teaching all that Christ has commanded, then we, you know, we can open up the question about the Lady Gaga thing and, you know, but until then, yeah, since we're not done, um, as soon as we're done though, you know, I, w w sure we can, ex we can ask the question as to whether or not we should be talking about Lady Gaga in church, but let's wait until we're done. Okay. And <laughs> you're going, uh, Chris, well, that would mean that we keep her out. Right. Exactly. The job of the pastor is to preach the word, not explore the impact of somebody who's only sold 25 million albums. Who cares? You, you understand what I'm saying? Anyway, moving along. Oh, yeah, we're doing a, a, an emergent update. These are the sounds of the postmodern emergent philharmonic orchestra. Brian McLaren substituting for Doug Paget today as, they, as the spirit leads them in their free-flowing version of Strauss's, also Sprock Zarathustra. Set free from the constraints of modernist definitions of notes, they just let the spirit flow and move through them as they experience notage in conversation within community and then just let it all out. Bravo, bravo, bravo. Okay, so here's the question that I have for you. Okay, it's a simple question. Don't Google it. I'll, I'll tell you the answer. Okay, so when was this written? Okay, so we got somebody said, you know, Chris, it's not fair. You know, you know, Evan Gagline and Brian Wolfmuller, when you know they ask questions like this, they give away, you know, table talk radio points and they like narrow the category down. So I'm, I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to narrow this down to three uh, choices, but okay, those of you familiar with the emergent church movement, okay, think back, think back with me to 2004, 2005, 2006, okay, that's that's where I want you to, first and foremost to have your brain at and see if this sounds familiar, okay, theologian blank believes that that mostly young evangelical Christians today want to rethink what it means to be evangelical, but the movement's leaders are resistant to talking about the issues for fear of repercussions. Quote, 
People within evangelicalism desperately want to question the very foundations that made evangelicalism what it is, which is basically defending the faith, defending the Bible against the bad guys, blank theologian told this news outlet in an interview at the Pastorum Live conference hosted by Logos Bible Software. The Bible raises some difficult questions that these young evangelicals want to talk about, he said. But some old guard evangelicals have made it difficult to have these conversations. These younger evangelicals don't want to leave evangelicalism, but they want to maintain their evangelical identity while transforming it. What they're saying is, what some of the bad guys say about the Bible makes sense, whether it's evolution, whether it's Canaanite genocide, whether it's human sexuality, whatever. They're saying that we want to rethink some of those issues, but they're doing it from the point of view of having a deep connection with the tradition that they were raised in. They don't want to just leave it. They want to transform and continue the evangelical journey, blank theologian said. So it's so there's the uh, so th that's the thing here with you're going man that sounds just like Brian McLaren that sounds just like Doug Paget that sounds like the same things that Tony Jones was saying back in 2006 doesn't it so the question is when was this written okay now I'll tell you it was written well this week <laughs> This was written on June 26, 2012. The theologian in question, by the way, is Peter Enns, okay? And, uh, but I, the reason why I didn't want to reveal that at first is because I wanted you to hear what was going on here, okay? Here's the metaphor I want you to think about, okay? The, think of the emergent church as a baseball team, okay? When I was growing up, okay, I grew up in Southern California, and my team was the Dodgers and is still the Dodgers, okay? But when I was growing up, this was the team. Dusty Baker, Ron Say, Bill Russell, Steve Garvey, right? Okay, that these were the guys that, oh, you just, <laughs> what a great team, by the way. Anyway, so those were the guys that were playing baseball for the Dodgers when I was growing up, okay? Now, the team has changed, but it's still the Dodgers, right? Okay, now we got Matt Kemp, who's on the DL list. You got D. Gordon. You, you, you got. You understand what I'm saying? The point is this: is that even though the names have changed, the team is still the same, and the team still plays the same game. So here's the idea: I want you to think of the emergent church movement as a baseball team. Okay, and back. In 2005, in 2006, the guys who were playing for the emergent team were Brian McLaren, Tony Jones, Doug Paget, and others, right? There was a whole host of people who were playing for the emergent team, okay? But see, here's the problem, is, is that, well, Tony Jones, Doug Paget, Brian McLaren, and others, they've steered so far hard left so quickly that they've lost the ability to speak in large gatherings of generic evangelicals because they've, they're have they so out of step with what they believe. Remember, they were the ones who wanted to rethink Christianity, rethink church. Everything was rethink, rethink. Okay, well, here's the deal. The emergent baseball team has fielded a new team, okay? And one of the main players for the new emergent team is... Peter ends. Okay. 
So when you th- when you read him saying people within evangelicalism desperately want to question the very foundations that made evangelicalism what it is, well, that's the same strategy that the emergent team was using back in 2006. So it's the same strategy, it's the same game, it's the same goal, just that there's new people on the team. So if you have, you know, listen, if you've got a 2006 Brian McLaren emergent baseball team baseball card, you might want to hang on to that thing. Because the new player, that, you know, this year is Peter Enns. He's one of the new players on the team. So that's, I think you need to think of it that way because that will help you tremendously. Because they're basically following the same template, using the same strategy. It's just that they've got new people to move the strategy forward and to keep the team you know, together, moving forward in their agenda to rethink, re-deconstruct, uh, redefine, and utterly change Christianity. By the way, no generation has the right to rethink Christianity. Christianity is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Historic Christian orthodoxy stands, and it has stood from, from the beginning of the church and will continue to stand until the day in which Christ returns in glory to judge both the living and the dead. Moving along. Time for a Mark Batterson update, continuing with what we did yesterday. like your prayer life is running in circles now that you've read the circle maker well there's a reason for that and that's because well what mark batterson teaches in the circle maker well it's not biblical it's not what the bible teaches regarding christian prayer it's built off of well a legend called the legend of honey the circle maker but the problem is this we're not supposed to go beyond what is written in the word of god no story no matter who it's about, even if it's about somebody who believes in the same God you do, rises to the level of God's word. And God's word is the only true judge of what is and what isn't Christian prayer. Now, yesterday, in our segment on this uh, book, The uh, Circle Maker, we had, uh, well, Mark Batterson tell us that we were just... A p- one prayer away from having a dream fulfilled and stuff like that. And he actually made the claim that, well, if uh, if you don't pray bold prayers, God is offended by, well, non-bold prayers. But nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. Now, I wanted to continue today. Uh, this is part two of chapter two of The Circle Maker, at least the things that I think need to be commented on because it's clearly sh- it's clear to demonstrate, easy to demonstrate, that this is something different than what Scripture teaches. So here again is Mark Batterson. 
It is absolutely imperative at the outset that you come to terms with this simple yet life-changing truth. God is for you. If you don't believe that, then you'll pray small, timid prayers. If you do believe it, then you'll pray big, audacious prayers. Okay. And- okay. <clears throat> so you just need to come up, to, come to this simple fact that God is for you. And if you know that God's for you, you're going to pray big, audacious prayers. And yet Jesus taught his disciples, who knew that Jesus was for them, by the way, to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know, things like that. But here's the problem, is that this is kind of an interesting blanket statement that doesn't have the appropriate gospel caveat to it. Let let me give you a a passage to consider in this, okay? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now there there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay? So, wait a second. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What about if you're not in Christ Jesus? Well, I'm glad that you asked because the Gospel of John chapter 3 answers that question for us, okay? And here's what it says. Whoever believes, this is John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So here's the idea. This this is, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Okay, what do you mean God is for me? What exactly does that sentence mean? What is the cash value of it? Okay. Because, you know, there, there's some stuff biblically we need to hash out. Let me, let me read a little bit more from Romans, though. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Got it? So I hear this slogan being kicked around, God is for you. Now, it's kind of a ripped out of context statement. It's become a slogan, but it's part of an overall bigger picture. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who's the us, though? Those who have been brought to repentant faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. If you are not in Christ, the wrath of God remains on you. If you are not in Christ, if you do not have saving faith and have not been regenerated through the preaching of law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, then God is not for you. You remain under God's condemnation. He's for you in this sense. 
that Christ has died for your sins. So here we got a problem here is immediately we've you know we've got these weird things being preached and taught out there and my question is is are the people who are hearing this have they even been brought to faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? Have they been brought to repentance and contrition for their transgressions against God and his holy law? At this if we're going to talk about God being for us, we have got to talk about it in the context of the gospel and not make these broad, blanket, sweeping statements that really twist and change the gospel message. Does that make sense? We continue. In one way or another, your small, timid prayers or big, audacious prayers will change the trajectory of your life and turn you into two totally different people. Hmm. And let me back this up and hear it in context again, because, again, this he, he's making these assertions without any biblical text. Listen again. And one way or another, your small, timid prayers or big, audacious prayers will change the trajectory of your life and turn you into two totally different people. So think of it like the movie Back to the Future, okay? Um, you, you remember the movies Back to the Future, you know, the, the first one, okay? They go back in time to the 1950s, and something occurs that completely changes the entire trajectory of human history, right? And they have to undo it. they got to fix it, okay? That's kind of the same argument here, okay? So here you are. You're at this, this, this important moment in your history, in your life's movie story, Okay, and are you going to pray big, audacious prayers or are you going to pray small, timid prayers? And whichever one you choose is going to radically alter the destiny of your life. You know, you think back to that line in uh, Back to the Future, you're my density. Okay, where in the Bible are we told, listen, you need to pray audaciously. You need to pray big, bold prayers and not timid prayers. Where are Christians chastised by the apostles or the prophets or Moses? Where are they chastised for their small, timid prayers? And where are they told, you better pray big prayers or God is offended? Answer, nowhere in Scripture does it say this. This is not a Christian teaching. This is not a biblical teaching. This is an assertion being made by a human. This has its origin in the mind of Mark Batterson and not in the revealed will of God, which would have its origin then in God's mind. Nowhere in Scripture are Christians chastised for praying timid prayers and told it's going to radically change the trajectory of your life. Prayers are prophecies. They are the best predictors of your spiritual future. Okay. You be whoa, 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 whoa. Let me, let me play that again. Prayers are prophecies. They are the best predictors of your spiritual future. Hmm. Prayers are prophecies. This is a confusion. This is a confusion of biblical categories, number one. Where in the Bible does it say that a prayer is a prophecy? Where does it teach it either directly or as a correct inference? A prayer is a prophecy. No, a prayer is a petition. We petition God. God is king. Christ is king. So he, nowhere in Scripture does it say your prayer is a prophecy and it's going to predictor of what your future is going to be. So, I mean, 
I mean, right out of the chute, if you buy the premises, if you buy into what he's saying, then you are then with each successive chapter, you get farther and farther and farther and farther away from what God has revealed regarding prayer in Scripture. This is not Christian doctrine. This is something completely different. Who you become is determined by how you pray. Really? Who you become is determined by how you pray. Again, no, no verses say this. Ultimately, the transcript of your prayers becomes the script of your life. Mm, so, so, well, you know, my prayer life consists a lot of the Lord's Prayer. I mean, what's, what does that mean regarding my transcript? I mean, and it's the same transcript that Christians have been praying for two millennia. Oh, no. What does that mean? Forgive me in my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. Lead us not into temptation. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, stuff like that. I mean, that's how Jesus taught us to pray. So here we've got Batterson making these assertions. Your prayer life is a prophecy. And what you pray becomes the transcript of what's going to happen in your future. The Bible nowhere says this. It doesn't teach it anywhere. And i got to keep hashing this out. Where is he getting any of this. Now, I'm going to come back to a point that I was making earlier in the in the week regarding traditions of men. If you have your Bible, go to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. I'm going to start at verse 1. Mark chapter 7, verse 1. And I want you to pay close attention to this interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very religious, and they believed that they were justified by their keeping of the law. Okay? And as a result of it, they believed that they could keep the law. So they ma- they thought they made it harder, but actually they made it easier by adding their own laws around God's law. But watch, watch this interplay. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with their hands that were defiled, that is, that they were unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups, the washing of pots and copper vessels, and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, I'm going to stop right there. Is there a biblical passage that commands and binds the conscience of all those who believe in Yahweh that they must wash their hands before they eat? Does it say that they are their hands are defiled unless they wash their hands before they eat? Answer, no. Now, I understand that there's a lot of moms out there listening going, oh, you're just, ugh. Chris, come on, I just have got my son finally washing his hands before I eat dinner. Yeah, I'm sorry. The fourth commandment comes into play there. You just need to tell your kid that uh, God says, honor your father and your mother. So regardless of whether or not it's a biblical command, it's a command in your household. Get what I'm saying? Anyway, the point is this. Here we've got a religious tradition, okay? And Jesus is being called into question by the Pharisees because the apostles, well, his disciples at this point, they hadn't washed their hands, okay? Yet there's no biblical command in Scripture that would bind human consciences 
regarding whether or not they wash their hands before they eat. I recommend it strongly, okay? But your hands aren't unholy and defiled in the eyes of God if you don't wash your hands, okay? So here's Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And Jesus then went on to say, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, hey, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is now Corban, that means it's given to God. Well, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Okay, so here's the idea. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So now we come back to the circle maker. Okay, so the category is this. Traditions of men being taught as commandments, but nowhere is it taught in God's word. That's one category. And then the real commandments of God. So if you're going to really learn how to pray as a Christian, where do you go? The circle maker or do you go to Scripture? The reason I ask the question is because the entire circle maker has as its foundation a Jewish legend, not God's Word. And listen to these statements again, where Mark Batterson is basically binding your conscience, saying, God's not going to bless you unless you do unless this is what you do and your mindset because all of a sudden he's got a brand new revelation regarding prayer is this the commandment of god or is this the tradition of men listen again prayers are prophecies they are the best predictors of your spiritual future who you become is determined by how you pray ultimately the transcript of your prayers becomes the script of your life. In the pages that follow, you'll encounter modern-day circle makers who will inspire you to dream big, pray hard, and think long. The golf pro who prayed around the golf course he now runs will inspire you to dream bigger dreams. The government employee who beat out 1,200 other applicants and landed the dream job he had applied for 12 years in a row does, does this sound like the health and wealth prosperity gospel light? It should. Challenge you to hold on to the promise God has put in your heart. The parents who prayed for their son and their son's future spouse for 22 years and two weeks will inspire you to pray beyond yourself. And the time-defying answer to an evangelist prayer for a Capitol Hill movie theater in 1960 will inspire you to think long and pray hard. Hmm. The now, weird, he didn't say, we're going to take a hard look at passage X, Y, or Z from God's Word. This is all the traditions of men. This is not biblical teaching or God's commandments regarding prayer. In fact, I mean, a clearer case of 
creating the traditions of men could not be demonstrated. I mean, this, this is a clear example of that. In fact, Batterson has far more in common with the Pharisees than he does with historic biblical Christianity. And therein lies the problem. The only source that we're to go to regarding how to pray as Christians is God's Word. Not the traditions of men. Not inspiring stories. Now, does God want us to pray for all of the circumstances in our life? Of course. Of course. You can pray for, to God for small things. You can even do so timidly. Why? Because your great God and Savior is not up in heaven crossing his arms demanding of you that you have a particular level of audacity and brashness when you approach his throne room. Quite the opposite. We humbly petition our great God and Savior, even timidly, knowing that he created us and that sometimes the very things that we ask for in prayer are not, well, for our benefit. Understanding that we pray according to his will and not ours. That we understand that sometimes the things that we pray for are not good, and so he must say no. You understand what I'm saying? So we approach God with the right level of fear, with the correct level of biblical timidity and humbleness, knowing that he is God and we are his creatures, and he loves us. And when we come to him in faith and we pray for something as simple as our daily bread, we know that he hears us because this is how Jesus taught us to pray. Mark Batterson, apparently his God is just upset and insulted if your prayers are small and timid. And don't you understand your prayers are prophecies and they're a blueprint for your life. And if you don't have a big audacious blueprint, well, you're just going to suffer in mediocrity and a boring, bland life. Hogwash. This teaching isn't biblical. He's teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. I think we could safely say that Isaiah the prophet also prophesied against Mark Batterson. All right, we're up on our second break. We'll cover more of the Circle Maker you know, in the, in the episodes ahead. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. You can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lax comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater of the Budgie Cuts. 
part two. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. <coughs> you'll laugh. <laughs> you'll scream. <coughs> and you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back here. We're not done yet. Max Holiday's Birdcage Shooter, The Buddy Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by heretics everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Well into hour number two, sermon review time. Think of it as a sermon from a Socinian, just to see if you were paying attention earlier in the week when we played uh, Phil Johnson's final installment on his survey of historical heresies. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are, are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's uh, sermon <laughs> comes to us via C3 Exchange, Spring Lake, Michigan. This is a congregation that used to be a Christian congregation. Then they drifted into the Socinian heresy, into liberalism. And then they end up calling Ian Lawton to be their um, pastor. And Ian is a guy who likes to bill himself as spiritual, but, you know, not religious. And there on the stage at C3 Exchange, um, there's a piece of artwork that has some, you know, the, the yin-yang Tao symbol thing going on. There's no Christian, nothing Christian about this place. They tore down their cross and got a lot of media coverage when that happened, by the way. So let's, I mean, from time to time, we check in with Ian Lawton and the folks there at uh, C3 Exchange to see how their drift into apostasy is progressing. And I think this uh, sermon will give us a good indicator. So without any further ado, here's Ian Lawton and his um, spiritual pep talk called Live Large, Size Matters. Here we go. I can't believe I've been around in America for eight years, and I've never told this joke. <laughs> it's a classic joke. It goes back to the 1950s, and it's a classic joke in terms of the American-Australian relationship. So a Texan farmer is traveling in Australia, and he meets an Australian farmer. They start up a conversation about this Australian farm. Now, uh, the Australian farmer is kind of proud of his farm. He's stretching out these wheat fields in front of him, and he says, you know, look at these amazing wheat fields. And the Texan says, well, come on. Back in Texas, our wheat fields are twice this size. This is nothing. So they keep talking a little bit further, 
The Australian says, well, look at my cattle. Aren't they just magnificent specimens of cattle? And the Texan says, come on. Our cattle back in Texas, twice that size. That's nothing. They keep talking a little bit further. The Australian's a little bit crestfallen at this point. And just then, a herd of kangaroos <laughs> come hopping past them on the field. And the Texan says, what are those? And the Australian says, what, you don't have grasshoppers in Texas? Oh, yeah, that's just, just a riot. Just so funny. Yeah. By the way, I don't even know what the purpose of this function is within a group of people who call themselves spiritual but not religious. I, I don't, I'm not sure what function this plays. One of our great claims to fame in Australia are giant grasshoppers that hop around everywhere. You see, it's not just Americans that have this love affair with the large. If you go to Australia and travel, you can also find the world's largest pineapple. And if you go to New Zealand and travel, you can find the world's largest can of pop. Great cultural landmark in New Zealand. <laughs> it's not just Americans that have a love affair with the large. It seems to be human nature. Here in Michigan, we have the world's largest... Is that right? wasn't the one I was thinking of, but that's true as well. In Michigan, we also have the world's largest cross, which just terrifies me. Hmm. He, he's afraid of the world's largest cross. Are you a vampire? I want to prove something to you this morning, once and for all, that size does matter. That is... What an appropriate... Focus for a spiritual but not religious speech. My thesis this morning, and then for the next 20 minutes, I want to see if I can prove to you that size does matter. No one needs to look at Meg right now. <laughs> My secret is safe with her. Size matters. Now, if I could only give you one piece of advice... If there's only one thing that you ever heard me say, it would be this. Now, there's pressure, isn't it? The one piece of advice that I'd give, and it applies to so many different life situations, is anyone or anything that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I don't even know what it means. What's the cash value of that sentence? Now let that sink in for a moment. And think about that the way that applies to so many different life situations. Whether it's a relationship, a job, a career, a religion, a god, a political system, a political party, so apparently this is like the way of judging truth, you know, in his spiritual but not religious way of thinking. An opinion, a belief, faith, anyone or anything that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Now how do you know when something's too small for you? You know the same way 
when you put on a sweater or some, or some piece of clothing that no longer fits. It feels like you're trying to burst out of it. You feel constricted. You feel contracted when something's too small for you. And what do you do when you feel contracted? You get fearful. You put up boundaries. You get defensive. You get protective. These are some of the ways we manifest when something has become too small for us. Now, you have two options when you realize, finally, that something has become too small for you. You can either move on and walk away from it, or you can stay and try and make it larger. I don't know if you should be taking notes. I just really don't know <laughs> whether or not there's anything true to this. You know? Both are valid options. What I want to do this morning for you here is offer both options. You see, for me, religion has become too small. The language, the stories, the gods of religion have... To me, religion has become too small. Huh. I, I, you know, normally when I, we think of the terms small and large, we can take a look at, the, well, somebody, you know, let's take a look at somebody's girth, for instance. My wife, small, me. Large. Get it? Okay. We could talk about elephants. Large. Mice. Small. So all of a sudden now we're taking the categories of large and small, which usually have to do with mass and things like that. Although, you know, you can use them, you know, for, you know, that was a pretty small argument or a lame argument, but we don't normally use those terms like that. Oh, that's a small argument. Right? You go, huh? You know, normally there's small and large have to do with something that's quantifiable. So now all of a sudden we're going to quantify religion based upon a concept of small versus large and the definition is as it brings life? Huh? So now all religions have become too small? Except for, well, the one he thinks is right, whatever that is. So the one that appeals to him, the one that squares with his reason that he thinks is rational and reasonable. Well, that's large. Okay? All religions and their idea about truth and that we have to believe and protect, that's small. But see, he's large. See how this works? So, Sinian, this is just a skeptical argument, and, it, and it's, a, well, it's kind of a parlor game when it comes to language anyway. You know? People become too small for me. They don't make me feel alive. They're too small, so I choose to move on. And that's a valid option. And what I want to present to you in the next little while is a non-religious perspective on what I'm going to call cosmic humanism. But staying is also a valid option. So after... If it makes you feel large, then you could stay. But see, it makes him feel small, so... The gathering in our perspective session, I've asked my dad, who has found a way within his notion of Christianity to stay... Within his notion of Christianity... Hmm. And to make it larger, he's going to present this morning alongside me at Perspectives. So that this morning, what I want to show to you is both options. The option where you... Oh, well, how... I mean, that's so large of him. Move on. And the option where you stay. And there's no judgment on either of them. What Until it, Christ returns in glory to judge both the living and the dead. What works for you. 
Whatever brings you alive is the correct answer for you. Uh, uh, form of relativism here. Whatever comes alive for you, well, that's true for you. And the beautiful thing about our community is that we're made up of both. We're made up of cultural, religious people, cultural Christians. We find a way within Christianity to enlarge their world. And we're made up of non-religious people, people for whom religion has become too small, who look elsewhere for stories and for ways to enlarge our world. Now, that's why we're exploring this idea of humanism. Because when you bring a community of people together like we have, people who are both religious and non-religious, we need to find language that unifies us. And that word humanism is, I believe, the best word out there to describe that unity of both the religious and the non-religious. When I say humanist, I'm going to guess that for many of you, it falls a little short of really capturing a sense of your worldview. It's a good start, isn't it? But it needs some other word with it. Just the word humanism alone falls a little flat. Hmm. How do you know this is true? Do you have a crucified and risen Savior that proves your ideas regarding humanism as being absolutely true? Even though it's teaching a form of relativism, of course, you know. It doesn't get at the mystery of life. It doesn't get at a sense of awe at the incredible nature of being alive. Ah, so humanism is too small, okay. It doesn't get at the, the miracle of relationship. It doesn't get at that sense of wonder at growth and change and openness. So we're looking for some other word to put alongside humanism. Now, two weeks ago, I suggested the word... Yeah, why, again, why are we looking for a word to stick alongside of humanism? I mean, I feel like you're setting up a magic trick. You know, you got a hat, a rabbit, a table, you know. Growth and change and openness. So we're looking for some other word to put alongside humanism. Now, two weeks ago, I suggested the word holistic. Holistic humanism gets at that sense that our humanism and the, and the heart of humanism is personal responsibility. We believe that we can make a difference in our own lives and in the world. Okay, now I want to point something out here. Did you hear that? We believe that we can make a difference in our own lives and in the world. This is from a man who is clearly, clearly not even close to trying to be, quote, Christian. And yet, his concept regarding holistic humanism or cosmic humanism, whatever he's going to call it, the goal is the exact same goal that we're hearing from seeker-driven churches, to make a difference in the world. By the way, that's not what the church is called to do, make a difference in the world. Hitler made a difference, not a good one, but he made a difference. Okay? We're called to disciple the nations, baptize, teach all that Christ has commanded, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name, preach the gospel. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, was dead, buried, raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, he was crucified for our sins. You got that? So, I mean, I mean, immediately I'm going... Why should I believe this? I mean, what have you got that you can show me that what you're saying has any truth regarding ultimate questions? 
Have you got a crucified and risen Savior to back up your claims? Because Jesus didn't teach this nonsense. We don't have to wait for someone to rescue us. We don't have to wait for the next life. We can make a difference right now with everything that we have as human beings right here, right now. That's the heart of humanism. Holistic humanism says... So the heart of humanism is making a difference right here and right now. Sounds exactly like what I hear from Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, Bob Buford, uh, a lot of seeker-driven guys. That it doesn't just happen with our, with our intellectual minds. It also happens through our intuition. Uh, yeah, that intuition, yeah. So it happens through... Right, again, why should I believe any of this again? It happens through our emotions. It happens through relationships. It happens in science. It happens in nature. It happens in every aspect of life. That's what holistic humanism is reaching towards. Mm, and how do you know that any of this is true? But today I want to explore a slightly different phrase. And I believe it's complementary to holistic humanism, and that is cosmic humanism. Sit with that phrase for a moment. Co yeah, I'm looking for it in my Bible. Nope, not in there. Cosmic humanism. Now you remember in the 60s, the mantra of the 60s was to think globally and to act locally. What I want to suggest this morning is that we need to be larger than that. We need to think cosmically. We need to act globally. And we need to live locally. Uh-huh. Oakley dokley Think cosmically. Wow. <laughs> That's different. Think co is anyone else coming past? Think cosmically. Act globally and jump over fences. Is that what American grasshopper just went by? It wasn't a, an evangelical, was it? it Disrupt us. Think cosmically, act globally. Notice the swipe at evangelicals. He obviously considers them to be the enemy. And live locally. Now let me explore each of those three in turn. He's back again. Good fun. Now, for many of us, the stories of religion have become too small. Some of you will remember this quote from Carl Sagan who said, if you take the story literally, the Bible story literally, and if Jesus literally ascended when he died, after he rose from the dead, then ascended from the earth towards heaven, if that literally happened, then 2,000 years later, he hasn't even left the galaxy. If you understand the story literally, it becomes so small as to be absurd. Mm -hmm. Notice. The Socinian argument. Ah, oh, so Jesus hasn't even left the galaxy yet. Ah, oh, what a lame Jesus. So he didn't obviously ascend literally. Jesus hasn't even left the galaxy, let alone arrived anywhere mysterious, somewhere that we might call heaven. That is such a small world. So apparently he understands how all of this works. You know, wow. Old view. Now, those who measure the earth as being a very young earth, those who come from a Christian perspective, do you know what they do? They add up the years in the begats 
that are listed in the book of Genesis. And if yeah, you know, they look at the Bible. Yeah, Jesus taught a young earth too. Weird, you know. You add up the years of the lives that are listed there in Genesis, that so-and-so lived this many years and they begat so-and-so. If you add all of their years up, it totals about 6,000 years. Therefore, the, the, universe, the, the universe is 6,000 years old. He knows what he's doing. This, this is the exact arguments that Phil Johnson was talking about in his lecture regarding the Socinian heresy. Ian Lawton is a Socinian heretic. Again, this is a small way of thinking. That's right, yeah. So we need, we, need to, we need to think larger. If you understand the text, literally. Now, many of us have moved on and understood the stories metaphorically or poetically, and that's the way we've been able to enlarge the story to somehow stay within it. The problem I have with that personally is that it becomes very tiresome to have to constantly do mental gymnastics around these stories to try and make them fit into a modern cosmic worldview. There's great value in poetry, but these stories came about in a world which was smaller than our world. They didn't understand what we now understand. So these stories for me have become too small. I'm looking for something more. I'm looking to connect into something which is larger, longer, more continuous, more connected. I remember meeting someone for the first time and they asked me what my story was. You ever get asked that question? I think I asked someone this morning, what's your story? And how do you answer that question? The way, the way I answered this question at the time was to give an account of my life. I said, well, you know, in the 90s I did this. And then in the noughties, I did this, and I spoke about my life in decades. And this person said, that's really interesting. You've just given me an account of your life in decades. And I'm one of the youngest people in this room, so some of you could tell your story in decades. And that feels like a long time to us, doesn't it? It feels like a long time for us to speak of our life in terms of four decades or five decades. We begat one decade, and then something else happened. And again, it feels a little small. It's human nature that we're looking for something larger than that. We're looking for something larger than decades. We're looking for something larger than centuries. We're looking for something larger than just the story of humanity. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're looking for something large. Hope we could find it. I mean, hopefully it's big enough that we can all see it, you know? We're looking for... The great story, the story that brings all of it together, and evolution offers that. Mm, so evolution is the great story that brings it all together. Survival of the fittest, death being the mechanism of the creation of new life, rather than a curse. Yeah, I don't think so. Philosophically, it's got a problem, and, well, biologically, there's a problem, too, and that is, is that it's impossible to make the DNA molecule just using random chemistry. Oops. Evolution is an incredible story that brings together everything from all times. So a vital part of humanism is evolution. Hmm. Spiritual, but not religious. So spiritual evolution. All and evolution is red in tooth and claw. You know what I mean? Species. That's the sort of story that I can get excited about. 
That's the sort of story that I can find myself in, find an identity for myself in. And with the, the biblical worldview, the literal biblical worldview, the criticism we often put to that is that it seemed very human-centric. We put man, usually literally man, in the center of earth. Yeah, you know, like, because, you know, man was made in the image of God. And we put the earth in the center of the universe with everything revolving around the earth. That was part of the small world. Although the Bible doesn't say that. ...view that the Bible came in. And science said we're insignificant as human beings. Well, there you go. So you're not made in the image of God. You're insignificant, and you can find yourself in that story. Isn't that a great story? We're just this. In this, we're insignificant. We're almost nothing. And that leaves us flat. That leaves us cold. That leaves us wondering what our purpose is. So there's a way to combine those two worldviews and to bring them together. Now, the Bible was right. Humans are the center of the whole story. But it was wrong that humans were the only ones who were the center of that story. Now, the incredible thing, the, the authors of the, uh, the reading that you had this morning, the second reading, Abrams and... The other name was Primac. Uh, really interesting idea in their book that I want to share with you this morning. They suggest that human, the size of human beings is the exact mid-size of all sizes. Now, decades and centuries ago, we thought we knew what the smallest thing was and the largest thing was, always relative to what we can see. But now we know more. Now we have the technology to see even smaller things and out into larger things. And they say, if you see what we understand now to be the smallest thing and the largest thing, that human beings at our size are exactly midway. We're the exact mid-size. But we're not the only species that are... Wow, what a profound insight. It's changed my life. ...are mid-size. And they say that if there is life on other planets there's a good chance that, that life is the same size as us. And this is an interesting idea. Yeah, so we're going to spiritualize it and make it the focus of something that resembles a church service? You stop and think about this. It doesn't make us special so much as it gives us purpose. So my purpose is to be mid-sized. I'm a little bigger than that. Our purpose as that which is mid-sized in the whole spectrum of thing, is that we have consciousness. with the ability to be aware of the choices that we make and their impact on the cosmos. This is an incredible development. While over the last two centuries we've desecrated the earth at incredible rates, also in that time we've come to incredible levels of consciousness and awareness you might even call it cosmic consciousness. Mm. Yeah, I've heard the New Agers talking about that. Cosmic consciousness. Nowhere taught in the Bible. Weird. But this fills our life with meaning and with purpose. No, it doesn't. It sounds like a complete fairy tale. It gives us an identity. It tells us that we are part of a whole. We're not nothing. We are part of a whole. We're not the whole of it. It doesn't exist for us. But we are part of it, 
and we are connected to this whole. So thinking cosmically gives us a new identity and a new purpose in the world. Yeah, it just confuses me. It doesn't make any sense. And why would I, why would I want to believe this anyway? Why should I? Like I said, do you, I mean, can you beat the crucified and risen Savior? Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm going with him. I'm going with the dead guy who rose again from the grave. You know, and his resurrection was viewed, witnessed by over 500 witnesses. I can trust that guy. Why should I believe your story? But just to think cosmically is not enough. That could become very self-indulgent. We need to act as well. So the second leg in this trinity is to act globally. Hmm, act globally. <laughs> I think Rick Warren says the same thing. Weird. Now, the importance of acting globally is that what we do makes a difference. It's not possible to live independent of other people in other places. I want to offer you a great example this morning of someone who acts globally. That is Bill Gates. What an incredible man. Yeah, wow. I'm an Apple guy, not a, Mac a Microsoft guy. I consider it a privilege to be alive at the same time as this man. I'm sure he's not perfect. But yeah, I guarantee it. Uh, who amongst us is? None of us. We're all sinful. That's why we need a crucified and risen Savior. This is why your cosmic humanist story doesn't offer us any hope at all. But this man has an incredible vision. And his vision is a humanist vision. As far as I can understand, he has only a small amount of respect for religion. Describes himself as an atheist for similar reasons that I do, because this worldview is too small. But the important thing about Bill Gates is that with his cosmic worldview, with his cosmic perspective, he acts, he does incredible things in the world. Now, it is just amazing that what he and his foundation have done recently is help to eradicate polio in India, the whole country. It's probably easier to eradicate polio in India than all the bugs in Microsoft Windows 9. I'm just saying, you know. You know how many people there are in India? Through his work, through his money, they have eradicated polio in India. I believe 2011 was their first year in India polio-free. Now, his vision doesn't even stop there. His vision is that we can rid the world of polio. Yeah, good luck ridding the world of death. That's kind of our big problem, you know, because the wages of sin is, yeah. The whole world. That's an incredible vision. And it grows out of his identity as being a global citizen with a cosmic perspective. So don't just stop there with the cosmic thoughts with the cosmic identity, move then to action, to that place where you know that what you do impacts everyone in the globe. Have a large vision for your life. Okay, now, there is a reason why I picked this particular uh, sermon out, and the reason why is this. The bottom line is the same. Have a large vision. Have a grand vision for your life. Pray audaciously. Change the world, right? But you'll notice it's being argued without any pretense of it being biblical. 
Here's the point. So many of the seeker-driven sermons I review here at Fighting for the Faith is nothing but humanism with a couple of Bible verses stuck on it as post-it notes to create the impression that it's a biblical teaching. But the, the concept is still the exact same thing as what Ian Lawton is preaching, cosmic humanism. And unlike the seeker-driven guys, well, Ian Lawton's done with religion. It's too small for him. So he's not going to post, he's not going to take Bible verses and stick them on this humanistic speech to make it look biblical. He's lost all those pretenses. So he'll just give you humanism straight and call it what it is. But the seeker-driven guys, they call it Christianity when it's nothing more than humanism. Think about it. Most of us just live ordinary lives, don't we? We just do what we can in small ways to make a difference for our family, in our workplace, in our communities. We just do what we can, and that brings us to the third leg, live locally. The only way anything changes at a global level is to start somewhere. Start where you are. Live locally. Live mindfully that your local environment has an impact on the whole. Be sure to recycle. I'm not just talking about eating locally, although that's important too. Be aware that the way you live, your footprint, your impact locally. Yeah, check your carbon credits. Impacts the whole, not just the globe, but the cosmos. Be sure to buy a blue Prius. You and I, we have a very basic need. And that need is to feel that we have purposeful lives. We want to feel connected. We want to feel that there's a sense of continuity in our lives. We want to have a sense that what we do matters. Where do you get that? Do you get that from within religion? Or like me, do you find that religion has become too small and you're looking for that elsewhere? Either way, it's okay. Wherever you find that which brings you alive, go find it. Let it grab you. Let it take hold of you. Hmm, here's the truth. If you're not in Christ, you're not really alive. You're still dead in trespasses and sins. And on the last day, you'll experience the second death. Whereas those who are in Christ will have their bodies raised again from the grave. That's right. Mortality being swallowed up by immortality. And you will live forever. Real life. Sinless life. Eternal life. Face to face with Jesus, who will raise you from the dead. What this man is preaching is actually trying to put lipstick on death and tell us that death looks good. Give it a try. Let it inspire you to be everything that you can be in your own life, for the people around you, and for the whole world. The incredible thing about living locally is that when you do small things with great love and with cosmic perspective, you discover that within you all things exist, all possibilities all species, the past, the present, and the future come together 
in your small acts than with great love. Namaste. And he ended with namaste, and he put his hands together and said namaste. So there you go. Uh, the new shape of the Socinian heresy via Ian Lawton. Should be frightening for you. Should make you stand up and take notice that that message you heard huh, sounds exactly like the stuff we're getting from so many so-called Christian churches. That wasn't Christianity. It didn't pretend to be. That was the Socinian heresy, and that's where that thing dead ends. Right there. No hope, just skepticism, just nothing but doubt. Embracing death as life, calling good evil and evil good. Sad, very, very sad. That once was a Christian church. No longer. That is a synagogue of Satan. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.